Now our scripture reading this morning, which comes from Amos. I'm going to read this morning Amos chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And if you're following along in your Bible, then I'm going to skip down to chapter 4 and read verses 6 through 8. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because he burned as if to lime the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire upon Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kiriath. Moab will go down in great tumult, amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. Because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. And now Amos 4, verses 6 through 8. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another one had none, and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Oh, Lord God, help us to turn our hearts to you, to hear what you will speak, because you speak peace to your people. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. So this morning, we're uh, starting a short four-week series looking for God in the Old Testament prophet Amos. You depressed yet after that reading? Uh, Amos was a prophet. He actually was a shepherd who became a prophet, very ordinary person, but God used him in Old Testament Israel. Uh, Different Amos than makes the cookies. Don't get him confused with them. He's uh, one of a group of 12 uh, what are called minor prophets in the Old Testament. They're not called minor prophets because they're less important, just because uh, they tend to be shorter. Uh, Amos is nine chapters long. That's it. Uh, Nine easy chapters. We're going to cover it in four weeks. We're starting today. Now, if you worship regularly at Middle Street, uh, you got an email, hopefully, from us earlier this week asking you to read Amos in its entirety each week, just as a way of immersing ourselves in the text. If you didn't get the email or if you're not uh, not on our email list, I would urge you... uh, Join us every week for the next now three weeks. Read the whole book of Amos. It won't take you any longer than probably 20 minutes, 30. I'm a slow reader, so it probably takes me 25, maybe 30. 30. But carve aside some time and just read the whole thing. 
when we read big chunks of scripture, especially over and over and over again, it just, it kind of seeps into us in a way that I, I don't quite understand. But somehow we believe that the word of God is powerful to change us, even if we don't understand it. Even when we don't understand it. See, this is one of those, it's kind of a paradox, it's kind of a mystery, and, and a number of you who read it uh, have gotten in touch with me or you've talked with me this morning and said, what is going on? I don't understand what is going on in the book of Amos. I would urge you, read it anyway. Read it anyway. Because our goal when we engage the scriptures and engage God is not information. Our goal is transformation. And as we read, even if we don't have all the information, somehow, this is a mystery, God uses his word to transform us. So this morning, Amos, we're going to start with chapters 1 through 4, the biggest chunk. We're really going to focus on chapters 2 and 4. Let me make one more really important note about how do we interpret the Bible. Uh, This is true for all of the Bible, but especially the Old Testament before we start. It's important. This is so important to remember. The Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. That's a very key distinction. The Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. The Bible is a collection of 66 books or 66 works that were written by specific people at certain points in history to specific people in specific places at specific times in history. Amos had no idea that that Americans, there was no America when he wrote this. He wrote this, Amos was, lived in Israel, Old Testament Israel, at 760 B.C. That's, that's 2,700 years ago. Well, writing to, that's right, thank you, Bob. Uh, he's writing to ancient Israelites, okay? He's not writing to modern-day America. Very often, you hear people, especially uh, when we're talking about Old Testament prophets, I've heard pastors and preachers say something like, Old Testament prophets are speaking to America. They're not. They're not. And it kind of sounds obvious, but we have to remember this. America is not the new Israel. America is not God's chosen people. The Old Testament prophets are not writing to get America to become a Christian nation again, whatever that even means. They're writing to Israel in 760 B.C. Now, the Bible is still written for us. So we have to do some work to figure out how does it apply to us then. Let me just venture this, and this could be a whole sermon in itself. We don't have time. But we know from the New Testament that the church is the new Israel. Paul writes this in Romans 2. He says, uh, this is Romans 2, 28 and 29. He says, a man is not a Jew only if he is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. And circumcision was a sign that you were a Jew if you were male. He says, no, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly. Circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit. What Paul is saying and what all the New Testament authors agree on, and Jesus actually basically says the same thing. The church is the new Israel. So as we're reading an Old Testament prophet to Israel, we listen not, I mean, we are Americans, most of us. We can't get, avoid that. But he's not writing to us as Americans. We're listening as the church. What is God saying to the church through Amos? 
That's our lens. Does that dis- I hope that distinction makes sense. Let's jump to Amos. It's bleak. It's depressing. One of you told me that you read it before bed, and I thought, that's, boy, what a time to read Amos. You'll probably never fall asleep. Uh, it was depressing enough just reading, whatever, what did I just read? I read like 11 verses, uh, much less the whole, there's just judgment and doom and gloom. But here's the thing about it. Just like all of scripture, if you read between the lines and you look behind the lines, you will find mercy behind every single line. So this morning, this is kind of where we're going to go. We're looking, we're going to tackle the judgment of God head on. This is scripture. This is the word of God. Just because it's hard doesn't mean we run from it. In fact, we press in harder to see if we can learn about, learn to know God more deeply. So we're going to look at first the narrowness of God's judgment. Then we're going to look at the breadth of God's judgment. And then we're going to look for the mercy of God's judgment. That's where we're going this morning. The narrowness of God's judgment, the breadth of God's judgment, and then the mercy of God's judgment. Sound good? Good, because that's what we're doing anyway. Let's start with the narrowness of God's judgment. Now, as I read from the selection, or as you were reading Amos uh, in your personal time this week, you might have had a thought something like this. God seems really harsh. Doesn't he? You think that? (laughs) I know I did when I started reading it. And we get really uncomfortable when we read things like this, or when we think about God's judgment. If we're honest, if we're really being honest, we're like, I know I shouldn't say this because I'm in church, but if I'm being honest, it sounds kind of like God is just random or capricious or vindictive or mean-spirited, almost like he delights in punishing people. That's how it sounds, right? Let me just point out something. This is simple. In some ways, it's obvious, but it's so important, and we have to remember this. When we talk about God's judgment, it's, it's not like God just covers his eyes and starts throwing lawn darts, like, let's see what happens. It's not random. It's not vindictive. God's judgment is a very specific response to sin. When we get upset about God's judgment, the implication is, well, I'm upset about it because I don't deserve it. The only only way I don't deserve judgment is if I've done nothing wrong. But here's the thing. If you look at the list of consequences, and, and here we don't have time to look at every example. I can show them to you later if you want to see them. If you look at the list of consequences that God sends on Israel in Amos 2, and then you read especially Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, which came uh, probably about 700 years before Amos, you realize that God warned them about these exact sins and these exact consequences 700 years in advance. In those earlier books, God tells them, he says, if you do not follow me, you'll experience famine and drought and blight and locusts and plagues and the sword and eventually a complete overthrow of your nation. And then in Amos, he's really effectively saying, because you have not followed me, you will see all of these things again. Every single one of these judgments, God has already warned uh, the Israelites about in Scripture. This is not out of the blue. He warned them, and they disobeyed anyway. 
And lest you think that God is impatient or quick-tempered, remember, he warned them of these things 700 years earlier, and he continued and continued and continued to warn them. He waited and waited and waited and warned and warned and warned and was patient and was patient and was patient for 700 years. And finally, after 700 years, the Israelites realized the consequence that they had known about all this time. When we think about the judgment of God, we often accuse God as though he's the one being irrational. We fail to see the fact that he has warned us and warned us and warned us. And he waits and is patient and waits and is patient. That's the narrowness of God's judgment, that it's not over the top, it's specific and measured. But now let's look at the breadth of God's judgment. Here's what I mean by the breadth. If you, if you read uh, Amos chapter 1 and early in chapter 2, you see that God, he kind of pronounces his judgment over six different nations or six groups of people. He starts with Damascus, which was the capital of the Arameans, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. Now, we gloss over those, right? Like, if you read those this week, uh, I bet you just read those and thought, huh, wonder who that is, and move right on. That's a common response. But let me just urge you, when you see the name of either a person or a place in the Bible, look it up. Because it's, I don't know if I can say always, it's almost always significant. If you look up these six countries, like most Bibles nowadays have a map in the back, so if you just flip to the map and you were to look up those four or those six places, what you would see is that they're the six countries that directly border Israel on all sides. And if you know your Old Testament history just a little bit, you know the Israelites are God's people. And everybody else on this list is not God's people. In fact, the Israelites considered them to be their enemies. So God starts in Amos 1 and early in Amos 2, and he lists all of Israel's enemies. And remember, Amos is writing to the Israelites. But he lists all of their enemies, and then he catalogs all of these sins and judgments and punishments. And at this point, what are the people of God doing? They are cheering. Yes! Yes! God is finally coming to crush our enemies. Show them. Get them, God. And then he gets to verse 6, and he repeats the exact same judgment formula and says, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Now, I'm skipping over Judah. They're kind of this like weird middle ground, and again, I just there's not time to fully get into it. The big idea is this. God skewers the enemies of Israel. The Israelites get all amped up and all jazzed up. Yes, God is finally giving us the victory we've been waiting for. And then he abruptly turns the mirror to his own people. And he says, y'all are no different. In fact, you're in a worse position. First, you'll notice, and we didn't have space to print all of this in the program, but if you look at your Bible, if you look at the judgments on those first, really, seven, Damascus through Judah, it's like two verses. Then you look at the judgments on Israel, and it's like three times as long. The list of judgments on God's own people is far longer than any of the judgments on the other groups. It's, it's almost like, um, you ever met, <laughs> you ever met or come across the child of a really powerful person? 
You know that kid, the kid who's like, you, you know, do you, do you have any idea who my mom is? Or do you have any idea how powerful? Like that kid is obnoxious, right? Israel is basically that kid, that obnoxious kid who thinks that because their dad is so-and-so, they can get away with whatever they want, that the rules don't apply to them. They were arrogant. There's almost this like spiritual, you know, nanny, nanny, boo-boo, like look who we are. And it becomes so easy to notice and to point out everybody else's flaws that you remain blissfully ignorant of your own. It's to them, to the Israelites, and maybe, yes, to the church today, that God says, be very, very careful. Just because you are my people, that doesn't mean you are exempt from my commandments or my judgments, because God expects more from his people. He's saying, you, you call yourselves my people, you don't, you don't look like them, you don't smell like them, you don't... You don't have the fragrance of my people. There's a saying, I hear this pretty frequently. In fact, somebody just said it to me this week. They told me that a friend of theirs said it. And maybe you've heard it too. Uh, I would go to church, except the church is just full of hypocrites. You ever heard that? Maybe some of you have said that. <laughs> you ever heard that? And when every time I hear that, like my gut instinct is to say, of course it is. Like you're exactly right. Because we're all sinners and we all like desperately need the grace of Jesus. And no, we're not here because we're perfect. We're here because Jesus has been perfect for us. And... But let's not use the grace of God as an excuse to just explain that away. Because the critics who say that are on to something as well. There is truth in it. That we who claim to follow God ought to look more and more and more like God. We who say we follow Jesus ought to look and smell and taste more and more and more like Jesus. And less and less and less like the culture around us. We say we follow Jesus who says, love your enemies. And then we rip somebody to shreds in a Facebook post because they disagree with us politically. And they're not even an enemy, like they just disagree with your politics. You see, we claim to follow Jesus who calls us to a much higher standard of, of purity and then we live the exact same lifestyles and permit the exact same behaviors and consume the same media and entertainment and look no different from the world around us. We say we follow Jesus who was the gentlest person who ever lived and then our tongues just pour out harsh words the moment we get impatient or frustrated. The, the breadth of God's judgment means that just because we're God's chosen people doesn't exempt us from God's commandments. In fact, because we are God's chosen people, because we are the new Israel, God calls us to a higher standard. Have I depressed you enough? <laughs> the narrowness of God's judgment, the breadth of God's judgment, Let's move to the great paradox, and this is where we're moving this morning, which is the mercy of God's judgment. You may be wondering, wait a minute, mercy and justice sound like opposites. How can, how can judgment itself be merciful? Let me show you. 
in chapter 4, if you have your Bible open, or if you don't turn, if you, if you can, flip your Bible to Amos 4, you can see a little bit of it in the program, but I want you to see it all if you can. In chapter 4, there's one phrase that recurs five times in six verses. In verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, and verse 11. And in fact, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read those six verses to you. And just listen for what you hear repeated. And if your Bible's open, you can follow along. This is starting in Amos chapter 4, verse 6. This is what God is saying to his people. Remember, to Israel. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and your vineyards. I struck them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your figs and olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you like I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. You hear the pattern? What does God want? He wants his people to return to him. He wants his people to love him and to follow him and to obey him, not because he's insecure, not because he just needs this kind of validation or affirmation, but because he loves his people and he knows that his way brings life and every other way brings death. God does not want his people to die. See, we read the judgment and we think God is cruel. God is mean-spirited. God is vindictive. But God knows that sometimes the only way to get our attention is a sharp word or a sharp consequence because we're just too stubborn or we just don't listen. Just on Friday, two days ago, I took my daughter to play mini-golf. And we had a great time for about three holes. And she's four. So uh, mini golf, 18 holes in mini golf is like not exactly, she just doesn't have the attention span. And that's fine, like that's not what it was about. So we're playing, but I'm still kind of enjoying myself and playing and I, I'm, I'm lining up a shot and she's like, you know, taking her ball and just dropped it right in the hole. And look daddy, it's great, you did great. And I'm lining up my shot and then I turn around and I can't find her. Now it's a mini golf course, it's contained, like it's not a big deal, but she's poor, she needs to learn. So I go looking for her. She's gone, I don't know where she is. Finally, it takes me two or three minutes of walking like the entire course, asking her, have you seen my, finally I find her. And I see her, and she's probably about 15 or 20 yards off, a little ways, and I called out her name. No response. Called out her name again. No response. Elliot. Nothing. Elliot. Nothing. Elliot! Got her attention. Got your attention. 
Daddy is cruel and mean-spirited and vindictive and, right? No. No, Daddy, Daddy loves his little girl more than there are words to describe. And for her good and her safety, she needs to learn not to run off where I can't find her. And sometimes the only way to get her attention, because she's so absorbed in what she's doing, is, is something that's going to sting. Something that's going to make her cry. And I know it's going to make her cry. But that's the only way. God's judgment isn't being spirited. It's just sometimes that's the only way he can get our attention. E.B. Pusey was a, um, a bishop in the Anglican Church in the 1800s in Britain. He wrote this. He said, it is a great gift of God that he should care so much as to chasten us. If you're at an especially hard point in life, it doesn't, a lot of times like we wonder, is, is God like punishing me or judging me or disciplining me? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Not, it's not automatically. There are great examples in scripture like Job or the Apostle Paul who, who suffered and it was not God's judgment. It was not God's discipline, so maybe not. But there are also times in Scripture that suffering and judgment is a result of God's discipline. In Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews tells us outright, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. If you're in a season of suffering or difficulty, it's worth asking yourself, is this discipline? Is this a consequence? Is God trying to get my attention? Have I been wandering from God? And is this God's way of trying to jerk my attention back to him? Psalm 139, which we read as the call to worship, ends this way. Uh, David says, search me, O God, know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any unclean way within me and lead me in the path of life everlasting. Is, is God disciplining you? I, I, I don't know. Here's, here's what's amazing. Whether he is or whether he isn't, the response is the same. Draw near to Christ. Draw near to God. If he's not, draw near to him. And if he is, draw near to him because that's exactly what he wants. And then the second irony of preaching this is that the people who like, are most tender and most need to hear this are the people who are most like, but the people God's most trying to get their attention are the people who are actually least likely to listen. <laughs> so if you're feeling especially tender at this, be encouraged. God, God wants you to draw near to him. Let me just make one more very practical note. I heard um, a church we were visiting in Virginia a couple months ago. The pastor said this, and it rang so true. Many of you are grandparents, and you pray, you love your grandkids, and you pray for them. And that's, listen, I'm, I'm so convinced that prayer is one of the greatest and most neglected ministries of the church, especially among grandparents. And the way you pray for your grandchildren is just beautiful and admirable. Pray for them. But many of you have grandkids who are not walking with the Lord, and you're tempted to, to pray and ask God, Lord, help them, make their life easier. Don't pray that. 
I know this sounds cruel, but if your grandkids or your kids are walking away from God, don't pray for their life to get easier. Pray for their life to get harder. Pray for their life to get so hard that they have no choice but to turn to Jesus. If you pray for their life to get easier while they're walking from God, it's no different than having a kid who's playing right near the freeway and saying, choose your own way, kid. Like, that's not, that, that's negligent malpractice. I'm not saying you want your grandkids' life to be hard. Of course not. It's a, it's, but it's, it's the only mercy. It's, it's a very severe mercy. I understand that. And I don't say it lightly. But sometimes the severest mercy is the only mercy that will bring us to Christ. Alec Motyer was an Irish theologian and pastor. He died in 2016. Uh, He wrote this. God looks for repentance, not through sadistic delight in seeing us grovel, but because there's no other way back to the fellowship which delights him. He looks for repentance, not because he wants us to live amid the ruination brought by sin. He doesn't but because repentance is the gateway to recreation. God wants you to know the joy of recreation, of fullness, like he wants you to be as fully human as possible. And the closer you are to God, the more fully human you will become, not the other way around. He knows us better than we know ourselves, and he knows that sometimes that means he has to shout just to get our attention. It's not a sign he doesn't love us. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Is God trying to get your attention somewhere? Is there a longing? Is there something gnawing at you? Is there a dissatisfaction? Is there an emptiness, a sense of just being incomplete? Could it be that God wants to use that to woo you back to himself? Let's try to tie all of this together as we close. There's one phrase I want to dwell on. One more phrase. In chapters 1 and 2, we hear this phrase over and over. God says, I will not turn back my wrath. Then in chapter 4, he says five times in six verses, I did all these things, yet you have not turned back to me. Same word. It's a Hebrew word, shuv. It's also translated as repent. It means make a U-turn, turn around, change your heart, your mind, your actions. Now, if you think about this carefully, it can get even more confusing because you think, wait a minute, God's people are not turning back and God is not turning back. Something's got to give. It's like what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? What do we do? What's the answer? Brothers and sisters, we find our answers on the cross, specifically in Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. Jesus Christ set his face like flint, courageously, and refused to turn back from the cross, even though he knew it meant being completely forsaken and abandoned by his Father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why hast thou abandoned me? And yet he didn't turn back from that. At the same time as Jesus hung on the cross, God the Father did not turn back from pouring out his justice on his own son 
In Isaiah 53, it says it was the will of the Lord to crush his son. Why? Because God is cruel? Because he's vindictive? Because he's mean-spirited? No. It was out of love. He knew it was the only way he could win back his covenant people. It's the only way. On our own, he knows we will never turn back to him. We can't. So he sent his son, as it were, to not turn back in our place. And on whom he, the father, could not turn back, in a sense, as our substitute. The only way justice can truly be served, the only way we could ever turn back to God, is if we see Jesus Christ giving his life on our behalf. There's no other way. You see, God exercised his judgment, his justice, on Jesus Christ, on his own Son, in our place. He did not turn back from crushing his Son, so that, hear me closely here, so that he could, as it were, turn back from crushing you and crushing me. That's the good news of Jesus. At the cross, the perfect justice and the perfect mercy of Jesus Christ intertwine. Is God trying to get your attention somewhere? Look to the cross. Look to the cross. Look to Jesus, who took your sin and brokenness on himself, and who wants more than anything for you to turn back to him so that you can become as fully human and fully alive as possible. Let's pray. Oh Lord, on our own, we, we just don't listen very well. We forget. We're stubborn. <laughs> we go astray. Think of Isaiah 53 again that says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned, every one of us, to our own way. Yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Fix our eyes on the cross, on Jesus Christ, whose death gives us life, whose sacrifice means that we never have to go without who showed us the deepest and most profound love imaginable and restore us to life. Unite us with Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead. Oh Lord, every day, every moment when our hearts are tempted to turn from you, would you woo us and seduce us to turn back to you through your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.